Hi, Victoria. Hello. Hello, Dr. McKenzie. <laughs> Maybe I uh, startled you because I had the appearance of a dog. <laughs> I think I'm a person again. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, fantastic. Well, welcome to Science Society. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I am going to pin a link up above. Katarina will be here shortly. And um, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to pin a link to your research above you. Great. Thank you very much. Oh, um, if you would please click on my photo and then click make a moderator, then I'll be able to do that. Done. Thank you. That was quick. Okay, good. Now we've got the link to your PowerPoint above. Welcome, friends who are arriving. Welcome, Dr. Mara. Welcome, Jamie. Feel free to ping other friends in. Welcome, Ansuman. Dr. McKenzie, have you had a chance to um, go about Clubhouse a little bit and explore? I, I haven't had too much chance to explore, um, but uh, so I've, I've only really looked at this room and had the introduction um, from Katharina. So yeah, it seems like a great platform, though. It's, it's such a cool idea. Hello, Dr. McKenzie. How are you? I'm Jamie. Hello. Good, thank you. How are you? Uh, like I was saying, fellow Scots. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, good. I'm looking forward to your talk today. Thank you very much. You, you can just call me Lewis, by the way. That's fine. Oh, thank you, Lewis. <laughs> you can call me Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay, then you can call me Victoria. I'll mute just now and let you say hello to a few more people, Liz. I'm just inviting some other Science Society members in, and sometimes it can take a few minutes for people to arrive. We never know. Oh, great. Th thanks for explaining that, Victoria. That's very helpful. Yeah, there's great variability. You know, sometimes we have a meeting, a room, and then suddenly Oprah appears on the app, and everybody goes to listen to Oprah. You know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> Really, that's happened. I, I'm just new here as well, Lewis. I'm literally like only like like one week um, newer, uh, you know, older to this 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 platform. 
Oh wow! You, yeah. So, are you new to you're just new to it as well, right? Like, uh, absolutely brand new. Yeah. Yeah, um, it it seems to extremely a lot of potential in it. A for like people to have. Convert. I'm surprised how many people are in favour of all these kind of talks through this kind of medium. Honestly, but pleasantly. Yeah, I mean it. It's it's slightly unusual. I guess it's like having a podcast that you can join in with, right? Yes, that's what I was thinking. It's just like that, or or a radio show, or something like that, where you've got like a talker, and you actually can be involved. It's it's a yeah. system that seems quite simple but incredibly effective so far. The seen. involvement aspect is really community building too, because we can all be here and ask to speak, and in addition. We can learn about each other because you can click through bios and learn about the work that people are doing. Well, I should probably update my bio. Oh, sure. Take a moment. Yeah. <laughs> plus, plus, Victoria, plus, Victoria, how many places could a, could a random person get to speak to Oprah other than in Clubhouse, eh? Right. <laughs> That's the way it is. And even uh, with Science Society, we've been open only a little more than a month, and we've already got one and a half thousand members so hooray for science i'll second that <laughs> yeah hey jen nice to see you let's see she would like to come up come say hi hello everyone hi victoria i saw that you were in this room and you're always in very educational nice calm wonderful rooms with great community as i heard you hear heard mm. you say earlier so um i just thought i would uh join along and listen to the conversation today oh fantastic thanks it's nice for you to join jenny that's great uh jamie i wanted to ask so you're in scotland as well are you somewhere on the east coast going by your accent Sorry, just unmuting there. I'm in Edinburgh. Yeah, cool. Yep, just nearby the castle. Where about yourself? Where are you at? Uh, currently in Glasgow, where it's been uh, the, the typical four seasons in one day. <sighs> I know, I know. Roasting hot two days ago, and it's going to be snowing tomorrow, apparently. That's insane. Oh, like, yeah, we've already had snow in Glasgow today, snow and sunshine. Yeah. Sounds Isn't beautiful. It? It's lucky that climate change is a, is a myth, right? Otherwise, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> I was visiting there um, a few years ago, right before the pandemic. My daughter, my youngest, spent a year at University of Edinburgh. Oh, it's, it's such a brilliant city to visit. Yeah, mm, it was brilliant. It was yeah. She she was so sorry to come home. Tried hard not to. And <laughs> fantastic place to visit, and really, and yeah, we went to Glasgow just for a bit though, but mostly we're in Edinburgh, and and the people were so welcoming, and of course it was beautiful. If the weather's nice, the uh, the the visuals in Scotland are truly magnificent. Just quite often they're kind of blanketed under haze and rain, eh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that. <laughs> The architecture is lovely. Even in Glasgow, there's lots of nice architecture. If you look up, but half the time you've just got wind and rain in your face, so it's always a uh, yeah hard to sometimes hard to look mm -hmm. up. That's, I'm in that's Oregon. That's how we learn to be so upbeat, isn't it? Because we always try to look at the bright side because it's dark so often. <laughs> 
Yeah, you must. I, I'm in Oregon, and so we have a lot of rain and <laughs> and clouds. But but we did drive to Isle of Skye. I did, and that oh, was yeah. absolutely terrifying to drive on those single track roads on the that side of the street. But um, but we saw the dinosaur footprints. I, I oh yeah. To- there was an amazing discovery recently from Sky that was uh, on a lot of the science news channels, which was, I think, the largest ever pterosaur in Sky. Something along those lines was discovered in Sky. I hadn't heard that. That's incredible, really. Yeah, it's a team from Edinburgh University led by, uh, I think, an American chap. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I was just double-checking the news there via Google. It's... um. The headline is the winged giant that was bigger than T Rex. Wow! Uh, Thank you. Thank about you. The size of a giraffe. That's amazing. I love finding out about those crazily huge dinosaurs, like the you know, the megalodons that sounded like if they existed now, they would just eat our entire fleet on <laughs> the waves. Did you say? Eat whales? What did you say? No, I'm talking about you know the, the megalodons from like, yes. prehistoric times. Yes. They're like they're, they were so massive that they would just eat our boats now. Like if they still existed, they would be oh, like they could. Yeah. They, we'd, we'd have to like have some crazily high powered like artillery to go and try and take one of those bad boys out. Oh, right? we'd make friends with them. Megalodon hunting would not be a casual sport, you know? No, we'd live alongside them peacefully. We'd learn each other's ways. Yeah, yeah, yes. So something to know, I I hear the sound of Googling. Um, So something to know is we have replays on in the room. So even though people may be tardy upon arrival, that everything said will be available on replays and science society has a podcast so we've been reposting the replays there and um on there's a youtube channel so there are lots of opportunity for for people to take advantage and um yeah something something must be afoot on clubhouse because um I'm just going to take a moment to ping a few more people, and then I will be right back. Okay, okay, thank you. Mm. Jenny, feel free to ping your friends. I am pinging away. (laughs) Jamie, I meant to ask, going by your profile picture, are you a musician as well? Um, I, uh, I, I dabble, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, like um, I, I hear a tune. Like acoustic guitar is kind of my favorite just now because, like, you know, I fell, like, I fell in love with the Spanish guitar. You know, when you hear that, you're just thinking, "Oh, that is just so incredible." Oh yeah, absolutely. So, are Are you familiar with a Scottish artist called R. M. Hubbard? Um, he, he's oh. an amazing, like, sort of uh, somewhere between punk and classical guitar. Self-taught really? classical oh sort of flamenco guitar style. His first album is the one I've got called First and Last. I really recommend it if you're into that style of guitar playing. I'm absolutely going to look him up. What was that again? R.M.? Hubbard. Uh, R.M. Like, Hubbard. Yeah, H-U-B-B-E-R-T. Right. 
not the creator of Scientology. Uh, <laughs> no. I'm gonna look him up. Thank you, because I'm always on the look for, for like that. Like because as I said, even though I'm like learning guitar and things, I'm not um as widely sort of like uh, what, what's the word for widely read, but with music that one <laughs> <laughs> as I'd like to be. Oh, there's a near infinite amount of music out there as well. It's quite daunting. Absolutely. When I hear people talking about indie music, like I want to be able to contribute, but I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying with these things. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what about yourself? Do you play something? Uh, do you have a hobby? Oh yeah, I'm mainly a bass guitar player. Um, oh, nice. And then, yeah, I have an acoustic guitar at home and so on. Um, yeah, I really would love to get one of these uh, Fender bass sixes, uh, which is like a halfway between a bass and a guitar. They look really yeah. fun. Oh, I got a 12 string a few months back. Ooh, very nice. They sound amazing, actually. Um, they, they, they look really silly and, and like unwieldy, but when you play a chord on them, absolutely magical. Well, um, okay, I'm I'm going to share the link in a moment also, but I, Katarina has had a, a bit of an emergency and she apologizes that she is late. She'll, she thinks she can make it in about five minutes. So if it's okay with you, we'll begin the room and then I will um, go about and try to send more links and more invitations. But to begin, um, Lewis, mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear how you found your way to science and, and then perhaps also to your specialty, recognizing that that's a pretty broad question. <laughs> <laughs> However, it's, you know, maybe when in your youth or, or now, not that you aren't still in your youth, but, you know, at, at any point in your life or at any point in our lives, I feel like there's a point at which something really catches our interest and you know in nature or you know in the sky or something and and then there you are and you're just you know you're just a science person for the rest of your life so mm -hmm. i'm curious if you've had an experience such as that well um yeah so t these days i'm quite an i'd say an all-round scientist uh, in the way that i dabble in a lot of different disciplines just like uh jamie was talking about dabbling in music um but what really got started me off with my love of science was uh, astronomy. It was space when I was a kid. Um, growing up in the 90s, I remember seeing, uh, you know, was it Halley's Comet? That, or was it Hale-Bopp, I think, was potentially one of the comets in the mm -hmm. 90s. Hale-Bopp was um, first, and then Halley's came after. Those were yep. so great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I grew up uh, near Glasgow in Scotland, out not too far in the countryside, but far enough that you could see these, you know, Oh, comets when they came uh, rather than the light pollution of the city and yeah I was just lucky I had a family that was very encouraging you know take me to museums and uh, you know I could watch Robot Wars on TV and watch documentaries you know I remember being allowed to stay up late and see the the BBC documentary news documentary in the Horizon series about um, Schumacher Levy 9 uh, fragmenting and impacting Jupiter, right? Which is, um, I think, was that 1994? Um, so I, I was just a little boy then. And um, 
Yeah, so so I went to study astronomy at university because I love space. And I kind of put up with the physics uh, and with it, the maths. <laughs> but the maths wasn't really my strong suit, I have to say. Um, I have a very um, difficult relationship with maths. <laughs> and an astronomy degree is mainly mathematics. But the other side of astronomy degrees is also, if you want to, you can get involved in building uh, or dealing with instrumentation, uh, things to read out data from telescopes, for example, or to like analyze light. And that was a side that I got into. And, you know, a big moment for me was uh, there was one summer, I think it was 2010, I got to do a summer project uh, that, that paid for like eight weeks. So it was like, this is better than working in the shop <laughs> where I was working at the weekends. Um, so I could throw on the towel for that job and I could work in a, a department at the University of Glasgow, which was the Institute of Gravitational Research. Um, who you know was a as a big conglomerate of people who work on the collaborations that build gravitational wave detectors, and at the time of my undergrad, obviously, uh, gravitational waves hadn't been detected yet, and all my lecturers were just saying, you know, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time, and sure enough, it was a few years later, two thousand fifteen, I think, was the first detection. Um. But yeah, that opportunity really gave me some hands-on lab experience. And I, I thought for the first time, you know what, I, I might not be the best at all the the maths and the derivations, but I'm not bad at working in a lab. And so I thought, well, maybe I could get a PhD in building telescopes, uh, you know, working on telescope instrumentation. That didn't quite work out. And uh, it was a bit of a bummer. But then one day I saw an email that said, um, we're looking for a PhD student to work on optics for blood oxygen measurement. I thought, huh, that sounds interesting. I don't have any qualifications in biosciences, not even at high school, not even the most basic high school qualifications. But I thought that sounds interesting. And hey, you know, I don't know much about cells, but I do know about blood. <laughs> you know, everyone's got blood, quite relevant. Um, so I ended up doing a PhD in that, which was looking at, um, or cobbling together optical instrumentation and adapting existing optical instruments for like imaging the eye, for example, and using that to measure blood oxygen levels basically by looking at different color filters. So that's kind of how I got into biosciences. Then after, after my PhD, I went, right, oh, what's next? Um, looked around for jobs and stuff and got a postdoc position working with some bioscientists who needed a little bit of optics kit built. And I learned so much from them um, about uh, biosensors and uh, things like antibodies and nanoparticles. And that's actually what I work on now, uh, pursuing my own research. But then the subject matter today is I actually ended up working in the chemistry department as a postdoc as well, building equipment, optics equipment for the chemists. And so I, I feel like I've done a bit of a grand tour of like different science departments. I've worked in physics, biosciences, chemistry, um, and I've just been learning the, the whole time and kind of bringing together what is kind of unremarkable physics skills and building the optics and programming things, and then uh, learning a lot from my colleagues in biosciences and chemistry to the point where I can have my own bioscience and chemistry ideas driven by biophotonics. Um, 
and I, I could go off on a tangent about what I'm working on these days, but of course today we're talking about some research that I did as a postdoc, um, which is this chiral light imaging. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about me. <laughs> yeah, Lewis, I, the thing that I'm, I'm hearing, is it's so interesting to hear your path into and toward optics, because hearing from, you know, when you're mentioning the comets, you know, it's like external to internal, and it's all the same, right? You know, like breaking down an atom and, and gravitation and and the tiny and and the enormous. And so it's, it's, it seems like it's just such a natural path that you found your way into optics. And thank you so much for that, you know, for sharing that history. And I hear so much love of science in there. I want to welcome Katarina. Yay, you made it. Thank Hi, you. Katarina. Hi. I'm really sorry. It's a work emergency stuff. We, um, you know, we do implants now for patients, and uh, I'm really sorry that it took longer than I expected. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, so, uh, it sounds like a very good reason to be a little bit late. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. You know, we didn't expect some complications. I I can't tell much, but it was like a very stupid mistake that happened in the OR, but it's all fine now. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. And I know Victoria uh, makes great introductions. So thank you so much, Victoria. And uh, the PowerPoint is up. So uh, I'm not sure did we already start um, with the PowerPoint? I'm sorry. No, I'm we were we were just um, becoming, yeah, just hanging out, getting to know cool. our researcher. And I, I wanted to say one thing that you reminded me of, Lewis. There's a book, The Powers of Ten. I don't know if you'd ever oh, heard yes. of a book about, yeah, yeah, right, Charles Eames and Phyllis Morrison. And, and your, your path just completely reminds me of that book. <laughs> that, yes, that you yeah, The Powers of Ten is a wonderful book. Uh, I haven't read the book, but it, I've seen the video. The original video was from either the seventies or eighties, I think. Yes. And there's there's been a recent sort of, uh, yeah. There's a there's a famous uh, YouTuber, well, uh, a popular YouTuber called CGP Grey, and last year, almost one year ago, uh, he released the video called Metric Paper, which is going. It's the same concept as Powers of Ten, but just with uh, sheets of paper unfolding and you know, getting bigger and getting smaller. Uh, I really recommend watching that video. It's great. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And metric and paper if, is what it's called. Mm, I'll, I'll find it. And then if you're okay with, with beginning your presentation of your research, then the mic is yours. Great. Thank you very much, Victoria. And, and thank you everyone for uh, joining. It's nice to see um, so many faces in the room. Um, now, as Victoria said, um, there is a PowerPoint to go along with this. Uh, I'll try not to rely too heavily on that um, because although it's got images and stuff, I know um, there's obviously some people in the room who maybe aren't relying on obviously seeing things. So I'll try and describe things as we go along. Um, I've also put together the PowerPoint because it kind of helps me remember what to talk about. Um, <laughs> I find it quite easy to go off on tangents and um, sometimes uh, I suspect I have a little bit of some mild ADHD symptoms sometimes. So by having a PowerPoint, it helps keep me on track. Um, 
But yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about research that I did as a postdoctoral researcher at Durham University in England. Now, Durham's a beautiful little town in England. If you ever get a chance to visit it, I would recommend it. It's got a beautiful cathedral, a beautiful river, lots of trees. It's a very nice place to be. And uh, I did this work, well, this work basically brings together chemistry and physics um, and biosciences. It's, uh, it's, it's quite nice that way. And I'm going to be talking about chirality. Okay, so before I get started, I should say, so I was a postdoc in this work. Uh, my old supervisor is a chap called Dr. Robert Powell. This is on slide one of the PowerPoint. He's a very nice uh, Hungarian chap. And then there's a bunch of other people who also helped and assisted with this work who are uh, on slide one. But to start off with chirality, right? So chirality is a word that you might hear, but not really know much about. It's in simple terms, it's handiness. So if you think you've got a left and a right hand, although in many ways they're not, the, they're the same, you can't wear a right-handed glove on your left hand and vice versa. Or it's a bit like trying to play uh, a left-handed guitar, for example, the other way around. Uh, so you've got chirality in chemistry. So you've got molecules that are left and right-handed. There's chirality in biology. This is a uh, slide two. Um, so we see patterns like spiral patterns in nature. For example, most snails have a right-handed spiral. And occasionally, as you see in slide two, you get an unfortunate snail that has a left-handed symmetry and then uh, wasn't able to mate. But that, that's like uh, chirality in the scale of life. But also when you think of the other scale of life, down to molecules and proteins, a lot of biomolecules are also handy left or right-handed. And so that affects the way that they bind, where the molecules go, and what they do inside our cells. So that's chemistry and biology. And then there's also physics. A lot of things in physics are chiral. Um, and in this case, we're going to be talking about chiral light and how chiral molecules emit chiral light and how we can use that to investigate chiral phenomena and biology. So it's nice to kind of bring it all together. Um, but to talk about this, I need to give you a little bit of grounding in some basic physics type things. Now, I think this might not display properly on your PowerPoint. Don't worry about it. Slide number four, if you've got it open in front of you, is about linear polarized light. Now, some of you might have linearly polarized sunglasses at home or just polarized sunglasses. You know, they're a bit, bit more expensive. Um, but they can block out reflections and make it easier for you to see, for example, fish in the water, if, if, if you like to fish. Um, and generally they work by, uh, you've got certain orientations at 90 degrees to each other, and the sunglasses will let through light depending on how you orientate them. So on the bottom right-hand corner of slide four, you'll see uh, an example of polarized sunglasses with a computer screen. A lot of computer screens use polarized light, these would be LED computer screens, um, and by rotating the linear polarized light you reject the light from the computer screen and you just see darkness. And uh, so that's pretty cool, but and that's linear polarization. Um, but also <laughs> slide number five says that's basically a lie. Um, we, we know everything in physics is a bit of a lie, 
it's it's ever more complex and complex descriptions as physics um so um we, we need to take it to the next step of complexity physics is always increasing complexity until we get to the point where we're really digging around uh, but don't worry too much about this there's a lot of jargon in this slide it's just slide number six is one that i'd use for like a conference don't worry about it too much you might see the important thing is the spiral patterns so light as it moves through space is a wave and if its properties are right well any particular photon can either move in the left spiral or right spiral which is left circularly polarized light or right circularly polarized light and you might not have heard of circularly polarized light before and you know if i wanted to make it sound complex i could talk about the properties of spin of photons and stuff you know the quantum optics club might like that um you but in mention, uh, mantis shrimp i think uh, has a, a particular uh, ability uh, to sense absolutely yeah so um a, a few animals in the can perceive circularly polarized light in fact humans can just about perceive circularly polarized light but not in any precise way that there's a phenomena called i believe Hedinger's brushes which is a visual phenomena uh, I, I haven't experienced it myself, uh, but but yeah, circularly polarized light. Yeah, we need. I'm really glad you mentioned that because we can see circularly polarized light with the aid of 3D glasses. Um, if you go to slide seven, I, I don't know if some of you have ever been to. Well, it's maybe been a while since folk have been to the cinema, and especially since you saw a real D 3D. You know. Um, if you think of the type of 3D glasses that came out when Avatar came out roughly 10 years ago, that was a big deal. You know, it was the big gimmick. It was these uh, 3D glasses that were really, really good. Of course, they don't work for anyone. You know, they don't work for everyone. I had a flatmate who was always very annoyed uh, because um, he had, a, I think he had a, a glasses prescription that was quite strong and asymmetric and he found that these 3D glasses did not work for him. But the point with this slide seven is just that you can convert this circularly polarized light into linear polarized light um, with elements that are found in these 3D glasses. I won't go into what they are. They're, they're just optical components. Um, but the point is we can control these states of light and you can convert one from another. Um, so with 3D glasses, what they do is they, these particular 3D glasses, they project one image in left circularly polarized light and another image slightly offset spatially uh, in right circularly polarized light. And then when you view these glasses, one of your, you view the screen through the glasses, one of your eyes gets the left circularly polarized light image, the other eye gets the right circularly polarized light image. and uh, you, you essentially see two images overlaid in each other, which our brains interpret as 3D images. Um, and uh, talking about images, I, I just I glanced out the window there and I, I got a little bit distracted because, as we mentioned before the talk started, uh, I'm in Glasgow at the moment. It was beautiful sunshine 10 minutes ago, and now the sky has darkened with snow. It's quite spectacular. <laughs> anyway, um, so to, to, to move on, to get to more of the chemistry side of things. Um, if you look at slide eight. 
Uh, may I ask might... a question? You wouldn't happen yes. to be working with uh, Lee Cronin, would you? Uh, no, uh, but I, I'm very aware of his uh, of his Cronin, work. Uh, in, uh, I think he was mentioning computational chemistry. Yeah, he was mentioning something with uh, chirality as well, and uh, I myself work in uh, uh, like uh, detecting biomolecules, so uh, biotech company that makes a sensor, um, and it's uh, it's an interesting problem. The idea of chirality. Can you? perhaps speculate on the perception of how seeing that in every day could have a difference or is it just not perceivable unless it's those edge cases and i know this might be more of a neuroscience question so we can move on if that's not appropriate <laughs> that's a good question yeah i think it is just these edge cases you'd have to probably to be honest i don't know too much about the perception on day-to-day -day side of things um we really need technology to see it as humans and with the technology, we can see some really nice details about the light that gets emitted and also, well, uh, the, the, the molecules that are emitting it. Um, so I'm afraid, afraid you have to uh, look up the neuroscience behind Hayden's brushes yourself. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't have it on uh, much information about it off the top of my okay. head. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I was just curious. Thanks. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Um, so, yeah. I've got um, a little chat. Sorry to interrupt. I put a bit in the chat. Um, welcome, everyone. Feel free to use the room chat about the Heidegger's brushes. Thank you, Victoria. Um, yeah, Heidegger's, yeah, rather than Heidegger. Oh, I <laughs> don't know how you pronounce it properly. Anyway, <laughs> so the, the next side of things, so we start thinking about chemicals. And I mentioned earlier that um, chemicals are also a, can be left and right handed. They can be chiral. So this can be useful uh, for a lot of different things, but especially when we think of, well, the, the, the chirality of the molecules affects how they bind. And obviously I've been talking a lot about light and the chiral molecules can give off chiral light, which could be, we're gonna build up to microscopes and uh, chiral light inside cells, but, one of the other aspects that this could be useful for is security inks. So if you, you maybe seen banknotes or passports under uh, what people call black lights, which is a uh, ultraviolet lights um, and banknotes from different countries and different years look different. So on in slide eight, you'll see a 50 euro note. Um, the red, the red molecules, sorry, the red light from this is coming from a type of molecule that we'll talk about quite a lot. Um, and so in slide nine, I can just give you an example of some uh, some molecules. Don't have, don't worry about the details here. Um, but uh, in the figure in the left, there's a left and a right-handed molecule of a class called bodipes. And on the right-hand side, if you've got the right instrumentation, you can read out the light as having a right-hand chiral bias and a left-handed chiral bias. So these molecules are giving out preferentially left or right-handed photons, depending on if the molecule's left or right-handed. Now, if there's chemists in the room, you'll know that chirality in molecules is quite complex to describe, um, but I'm just keeping it simple for, for now. Um, but those are fairly simple chiromolecules. Yeah. I say simple, a lot of work goes into making them. <laughs> yes? 
Uh, may I ask just really uh, briefly, because you were touching this, is going to be my question later on, but since you brought it up, uh, you know, ultraviolet light then, is that uh, chiro like, like light, or is that just a higher spectrum, like a higher frequency, or is, is that, like, you know how we can see ultraviolet with, uh, with tools, or with yes. the right kind of light, is, is that... Is that that kind of light as well that we're creating? So any sort of light can be chiral uh, because it doesn't matter what colour or wavelength it is. So radio waves can be chiral, uh, microwaves. I was just going to say, actually, uh, our team actually works in the RF range and we'd be uh, interested actually to recreate some of these results because uh, currently we're using like up to the six gigahertz range, which allows like the detection of glucose non-invasively through the skin, like an Apple watch sort of uh, scenario. So we thought, what else can we see? And one of the suggestions was to examine chirality. Do you expect similar behavior across the whole spectrum or like what's the nature of the filter? Um, it, it should be, uh, yeah, so it should be intrinsic to the, the chirality of the emitter. And now that that differs in different lens scales, but if you think about how different molecules act as antennas, for example, at different light scales. So I, I think a good example of this might be um, thinking about contactless card payment um, and how a contactless card payment uh, works over a certain range because it works with radio waves and there's a sort of little uh, kind of like a, a radio uh, or component in the cards that has resonant frequencies with radio waves um, and you can get a similar thing with uh, molecules and light so you can have chemical antennas that can absorb and resonate with, um, with uh, visible light for example, but instead of being the size of a, a you know credit card, they're you know nanometers across. Um, so I think you should have analogous effects across the whole uh, wavelength range that you study in physics. Um, what that looks like physically, I'm not entirely sure uh, in, in your particular wave range, which you said is gigahertz, because um, I'm not really familiar with um, the gigahertz uh, band range. Uh, too much apart from apart from is is, is gigahertz is it uh millimeter oh, wavelengths okay. roughly yeah. right oh crikey you know this goes right back to something i did at the start i did a master's dissertation looking at millimeter wave radio um uh millimeter wave uh radio telescopes um uh, for astronomy i guess i tried to get a phd in that field and uh, that's awesome. That didn't well, quite you, work you get out. my follow for that. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, but but the nice thing about going interdisciplinary is, in terms of science, and especially with light and you know physical principles, is that they are all the same sort of physical principles applied to different things across different wave ranges. And um, yeah, what a, what a circularly polarized antenna or emitter looks like for a radio wave is a lot different than what a circularly polarized emitter looks like for a visible range wave, but it's all a matter of scale. So you're going from the, the scale of molecules with visible light to the scale of a, a person with a radio antenna or even a building, you know? So um, <laughs> that's a really cool question.
Yeah, yeah. It was strange for us to be able to detect differences, for example, in viruses that had something like a, a difference in a gene. So one had a gene deleted and the other one did not. And we were able to make uh, detections and identifications at that scale, which was kind of uh, um, a very strange scenario because it's kind of unexpected uh, in terms of just the normal models. And just by sheer coincidence, there was a paper out of Iran that just modeled like the molecule as like a loaded string. So just a bunch of weights. And then they found like, you know, the magic numbers as it were for the simulation. And uh, the numbers uh, closely match the empirical data, not exactly, but closely. So it, it's a very strange situation to see that. So lots of cool possibilities for things. That, that's cool. I'd, I'd love to find out more about how that sort of thing works. Um, I'll send you, I'll, I'll uh, direct it's... message you the uh, Iranian paper. Oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. Thank you very much. Um, so to get back to molecules, so we're looking at slide nine. There's some, there's some, you know, uh, molecules are left and right handed and then they give off light and a sort of almost looks like a roller coaster kind of slope, you know, a big steep bit up and then a, a long tail down. Uh, and that can be left or right-handed, depending on the handiness of the molecule. But if you go to the next slide, slide 10, you can have a more complex molecule, like the, the sort that's taken decades of chemistry research to really build a, a molecule that's got, you know, in some ways many arms. It's got lots of different functional groups that could be changed in order to send it to different places inside a cell, for example. Um, and uh, it also has a really complex, if you look on the right side, there's a, a very spiky line around about the zero point. It goes up and down, up and down, up and down. It's got a very complex chiral spectra. So it's not as simple as a left-handed molecule giving off only left-handed light or a right-handed molecule only giving right-handed light. Uh, there's all sorts of inversions between them along the spectrum. And it's complex. And if, if you're a chemist, if you're like the people that I used to work with on this research, they could look at that spectrum and they could go, oh, yes, this tells us about the electronic configuration about this uh, europium ion. Europium's a, a lovely uh, element. It glows bright red, which uh, you can kind of see in this little image in the top left-hand corner on slide 10. was this lovely bright red color. And it's, it's what's used in the security inks in slide 8 on that 50-euro banknote. But the point is, complex complex molecules give you complex spectra. And if, if you flick it to the next slide along, it gives some examples of some complex molecules that, that have these uh, chiral light emissions. I mean, it's beyond my understanding of chemistry, really, these, these uh, molecules, because they're so intricately designed. Um, and really nicely engineered by the chemists who really specialize in this. But my favorite one is the one labeled F because it reminds me of the droid battleship from Star Wars Episode One. <laughs> That's just being nerdy. But anyway, point is, if you flip to slide 12. Also kind of looks like the oh. uh, ship from the Alien movies on Prometheus. Oh, the, yes, that's a good one. Alien. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, so... So a, a macro scale use, you know, like a day-to-day -day scale use of these 
uh, chiral light emitting molecules is that you could make security inks that you could make features appear or disappear if you looked at them with kind of like adapted 3D glasses. So if you take a 3D, the 3D glasses like you get the cinema and you put the right color filter in it so that you only get a little bit of the light, like the bit that's strongly left-handed or the bit that's strongly right-handed, then you could have one lens that would be left-handed, one lens that would be right-handed, and you could see features appear and disappear. Um, so there's a little cartoon of that with, um, with a, you know, these slightly uncanny faces, uh, seeing features appear and a, disappear on a, a banknote. L is left, N is neutral, R is right-handed. Um, but there's a nicer demonstration of it. This uh, in a little picture with a sun and, and a moon. Uh, and this is from a group in Japan um, who made this demonstration a couple of years ago. It's really nice. Um, so if you look through with the, with the polarizers arranged a certain way, the sun's dim. If you look at it the other way, the moon's dim. So it's kind of like a little night and day demonstration that they did with these glowing European elements. It's it's really cool. I quite like that. So security inks are pretty cool. Um, you know, passports, uh, banknotes, uh, things is, is well, it, passports and banknotes are the ones you think of on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you think about things like, uh, well, yeah, well, without getting a bit too grim, you think about news and the news at the moment, there's a lot of conflict and um, weapons tracking is a big thing for security inks. I know people who work on putting on, you know, basically secret encodings onto uh, all sorts of military hardware so that you can keep track of where the things have come from. You know, if they ended up in the wrong hands, they'd be, and then they, you know, find them, they were able to say, right, where was this made? You know, how did it get there? Um, all that sort of thing. Um, there's probably a whole world of security angst, even though I've written a paper on it, there's probably a lot of top secret uses that, uh, they, they never talk about it in public. Um, anyway, anyway, so I've been showing you all these spectra, uh, all these complex spectra, and since the 1970s, those things were measured with a, a really slow piece of kit. Um, like technology that's, you know, was around about the same time as the space shuttle, and it's good technology, um, but like the space shuttle, it was just kind of getting a bit old. Uh, and um, I love the space shuttle, by the way, but... Uh, uh, so one of the things that I did with my entirely unremarkable optic skills uh, was build a spectrometer that could do it faster. So this is slide 13. Um, there's a couple of pictures of like a black box with lots of wires coming out of it, connected up to various bits of equipment. And uh, then another picture with the, with the lid off. And basically you can get a lot of stuff off the shelves these days. Um, to measure light, you can get spectrometers that plug into computers via USB ports and let us see the, the spectra of the light really detailedly without costing all that much money. You can get them for a few thousand pounds um, and they can read out the light spectra really fast. So the old equipment would do this in like 45 minutes to one hour, whereas we could do it in under a second now, these measurements. Uh, because of just off-the-shelf components. So, you know, you often hear researchers say they were standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, we're just buying this kit off the shelf and just uh, basically just uh, combining the kit with the technology from the 3D glasses, but just making it better and doing it more precise. 
and that lets us uh, do these rapid scans of the chiral light uh, that the chemist likes so that they can look at um, uh, so that they can understand what their molecules are but also uh, potentially we can make it smaller because people keep making this equipment smaller and it's just a matter of cobbling it all together we could even make it handheld so that you could uh, you know scan passports or something for authenticity um that's that's a bit into the future um but there's nothing stopping us doing it other other than just you know having someone to work on it and uh you know the funding <laughs> essentially so uh, if we get an industrial partner you know we could definitely do that with them yeah google but, did that with the radar chip so they they were like hey we want to have a radar chip in the phone and you know two years later they had it and that was thanks in partnership with universities and so on and teams like that. So definitely exciting. Oh yeah, I hadn't heard much about the radar chip. Um, wow. So is this like uh, for for motion detection? Yeah, yeah. It was in the Pixel Four. We're like on Pixel Six now, but they've kind of. Uh, it was supposed to be this high fidelity interaction, and uh, we thought, hey, w what if you uh, did some viral detection with that? Would that work? So it was uh, very surprising how small the electronics were and uh, how, yeah, it, it, we ended up actually meeting the engineering team and working with them who actually worked on that. So it was oh, that, that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I do love it when these things all come together. So, so basically, we gave these spectrometers 3D glasses, right? That's how I describe it. And uh, we can also give microscopes 3D glasses. So if you go on to slide 14, uh, I've got a still of a video that shows uh, yeah, my old boss, the guy with the beard, this chap called Rob Palling, he's working at this microscope. There's a type of microscope called laser scanning confocal microscopes. They're basically scan a laser beam across the surface of a, a cell. And then we see light glowing from a dye. Um, and uh, basically, the, the confocal microscope lets you see as small as you can with light without getting into uh, <laughs> without getting into super resolution tricks. It basically lets you see as small, uh, well, basically, the features as limited only by the wave nature of light. Now, that's a whole other talk and Nobel Prize winning stuff. Is um, beating the diffraction limit, but for a lot of biosciences, uh, it gets the job done well. Of course, the bioscientists always want to see smaller and smaller because uh, if you can study individual molecules inside cells, then that's great. Um, but that, that's a whole other side of side of the microscope coin that we won't get into today. The point is, we've got these brilliant microscopes, and um, so one of my jobs. Uh, when I was working at Durham was to take that technology that we used for the spectrometers and stick it onto the back of a microscope, um, which is kind of slide 15. It's, again, another slide with a lot going on in it, but all you really need to care about is that we basically take the light out of the microscope, we send half of it one way and send half of it the other way, and then we, we analyze it for this uh, chiral light. And we can do things like if you look at slide 16, so I'll describe it for you. Um, so we've got a, a sort of square image in red, and it's got a line down the middle, dark line in the middle. And if you look at it normally, it just looks red. And in the top half, we've got a left-handed molecule. In the bottom half, we've got a right-handed molecule. 
and they look, these two, the left and right are equal brightness. But if you look at this with our microscope and ignore the numbers on the images, um, it's not relevant here, but you see that in the left-handed chiral light, you can only see the left-handed molecule and the right-handed chiral light, you can only see the right-handed molecule. So this is like a, a static test target. You know, whenever you do something, you want to do it with the simplest version first before, you know, walk before you can run. That's what this demonstration is. And uh, th this could be cool for security inks, right? Because if you're trying to like make things as complex as possible to make it, um, you know, hard to replicate, you could do, uh, you know, complex patterning, um, you know, intricate print patterns, or you could even do randomly, you could inject this sort of dye into little particles that would orientate themselves randomly and be physically impossible to double up because it's a random pattern made from the Brownian motion uh, of, of, of the solution, the particles in the solution. So I think it's called physically unclonable functions if you're into cryptography or uh, security aspects. But anyway, that's the test target. The real sort of PS de resistance of this work, which I was really happy to see is on slide 17. I'll just describe it for you because it's kind of a lot of information to look at. Um, on the left-hand side, we've got some cells. These are mouse skin cells. And um, on the top left-hand corner, lit up in green, is bits of a cell called the lysosome, um, which are around the center of the cell. Lysosome, if I remember correctly, I always need to double check because I'm not got a biology background. Uh, yeah, is um, lysosomes are bits of the cell that uh, contain digestive enzymes. Um, and then we've uh, in the bottom left-hand corner, lit up in green, we've got uh, the mitochondria of the cell, which uh, the meme is that everyone knows that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? Um, so these are different parts of the cell doing different functions, and they're both lit up with a, a green glowing dye that you can buy off the shelf. Um, or two different green glowing dyes, I say, one for the lysosome, one for the mitochondria. So what my colleagues did is they got one of their really nicely designed molecules and just stuck it in the cell, just let it let the cells eat up this small molecule. And they saw where it went to, and we found that the right-handed molecule went to the lysosomes, whereas the left-handed molecule bound to the mitochondria. Now, even though the molecules otherwise exactly the same in terms of structure, in terms of chemical composition, the right-handed one goes one way, the left-handed one goes the other way. And what they did to prove that this was what you could see with the chiral microscopy is they did an overlay where the green and the red overlay, you get orange uh, light. And that's on the right-hand side that's just showing you uh, that these two things match up. So basically what we've got is instead of having to rely on commercial dyes, which have, um, which are quite generic, uh, what you could do is if you're a chemist and you're uh, into biochemistry and you're trying to target very specific molecules and track where they go inside the cell or what happens to a cell in a particular disease state or as a cell ages or any sort of problem that you've got in biosciences, you could probably custom design a, a luminescent, a glowing chiral tag to track it around the cell. And this is the first time that we've ever been able to like visualize these handy interactions 
um, and more precisely localize these things than ever before. Um, so just to finish off with the slide 18, it's basically just a triangle showing you that cell biology, the physics and the chemistry, they're all feeding back into each other. We've got new technologies, which opens up new applications in biology, which drives the chemistry, which drives the physics, which drives the biology and back and forth. What, all way, they're all interplaying with each other and it's a really nice way of bringing together different things in science. And the thing is, the team that designed this aren't bioscientists with problems uh, to particularly solve. You know, there's a lot of scientists out there whose missions are to study particular diseases or to find out fundamentals of bioscience. And that's not the team, <laughs> myself and the colleagues, we're interested in this stuff, but we're not um, that deep into it. So one of the things that we're trying to figure out now is, well, we've got this unprecedented capability. What can we do with it? How can we track left and right-handed molecules inside cells and, you know, like basically like, you know, keep them under surveillance, figure out where they go? What problems could that be? And it's one of these big questions because so many molecules in science are left and right-handed. Where do you even start, right? So that's why I've got a little picture of a suggestion box, because, you know, if, if you know someone or maybe yourself, if you're involved in any sort of research into biomolecules that are left and right handed, we would love to know where this might go. Um, we're kind of putting this out there to the world, like, what could you do with this? And uh, it might be one of these questions that requires, uh, you know, a specifically designed chemical probe, but there's people that can design those. And it's been really fun to be part of this journey because uh, I think, as I said at the start, what was quite mundane skills for me as a, you know, a physicist, maybe there, you talk to some people who here do like quantum optics and stuff, hear all sorts of amazing talks. And I, I'm just one of these people that's like, I was mediocre in the physics department, <laughs> but by being able to work with people outside and, uh, you know, in chemistry and biosciences, we really like learn a lot of different things and uh, get to be part of something quite special. And I say you should always, you know, if you've got a curiosity and um, people who can help explain things to you, you can really learn quite a lot and combine your powers, you know, to be uh, the whole, to be better than the sum of its, to be more than the sum of its parts. Um, so I, I guess that's sort of where, where I finish, just to say it, it's come kind of, yeah, the biology, the physics and the chemistry all coming together and we're really looking forward to finding out where this might go, uh, particularly in cell biology. Um, yeah, so th thanks for thanks for listening to that main bit of the talk. You know, if you've got questions, I'd be really happy to answer them or just chat about it in general. I have a quick question and it's less the molecular biology thing, but when you were talking about light hitting um, you know, the, the left-hand side and the right-hand side, would that mean it would be possible to do something um, like have a, a painting that was actually painted with like chemicals with some um, left-hand side, right-hand side, and like just change the, like, you know, the light, like if you had like a... a, like a that sounds a, awesome. A yeah. In your, I love this like idea. Your, or, or even wallpaper, and you've got like a bulb that has two settings, and you click it to one setting, and it's like, you know, lions along the plains, and then you click it, and your walls now look like they're 
something else. Cause that... that would be so cool. That would be expensive wallpaper, I have to say, because <laughs> a lot of these molecules that you need for this are um, are uh, made, you know, just in small batches in, in chemistry labs, but um, in academic chemistry labs. But in theory, yeah, like I love that idea. That's rad. Um, uh, yeah, because security inks is one thing. I mean, I mean, it's basically the security inks, but bigger. Um, and oh, that would be wild. Yeah, I really like that idea. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> it's fun, you know. Like, um, as I think, as scientists, we're often uh, so close to the research and so driven by, well, where am I getting my next grant from? Am I going to still be in a job? All these things that um, it, sometimes it's easy to forget to have, you know, fun with it. Yeah, I, I will say as a company who is uh, kind of taking some sort of proof of concept to an industrial product, uh, the main thing that has been surprising to us is the cost of the signal generator hardware uh, has gone down significantly. So most of the computing usually re relies on being able to take samples at sufficiently high frequencies and then uh, smoothing them out and, and whatever. So that that's kind of one exciting thing because now you can make perhaps a mobile laboratory of sorts that fits in a Pelican case or something like that. And you have a set of feature vectors, maybe not all of them uh, as accurate as the others, but overall it gives you a real time pro like as you said it takes very little time it's like a second and the measurement is done uh so so it's a very by the time you're already lifting your finger off of the enter button it's already done at that moment so <laughs> another question you were saying about and please correct me if i've missed anything um you know for me not understanding but you were talking about tracking molecules um in the body and that's like the 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 holy grail sort of thing here right yeah um and the you said that um there are a meta like left and right sided light right so you're using light to find them you can use the left and right sided to find different types of molecules is that what you were saying yeah uh, yeah so you can use the fact that the so we we inject like a tracer well, uh, introduce a tracer into the cells. These are cells under a microscope rather than being in someone's body. And why it would have to be under a microscope is um, it, uh, another question that I can talk about. But um, uh, yeah, so so it's a bit like um, giving someone a high-vis jacket, if, if that makes sense. Um, um, you know, you give them something that makes them stand out. Um, but in this case, it's more like a high-vis glove that only that person could wear you know it's tailored exactly to their hand if that it's a bit of a weird analogy i just came up with it there um you know an, an acoustic equivalent would be like a glove that emits a sound that would let you you find it find someone in a, in a, in a room you know um right. and only that person could wear that glove and did you say the problem then is tracking like individual molecules like to be able to like say you know with all the, the billions and billions of molecules in the body that there's there's no way to like track what like one or, or one or two molecules out of billions is that oh well that that's uh, something else there are some ways of doing that so if you can tag them well enough you can use techniques called super resolution microscopy to get down to 
things that are on the scale of uh, molecules and the scale of a nanometer or so. Um, and that's a continually advancing field. That one, the Nobel Prize, one of the Nobel Prizes a few years ago. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Maybe someone can Google it. Um, and yeah, it's specifically to, if you can exploit this sort of very specific left and right handed binding, you might find um, ways of being able to tag the molecule and track it uh, that you can't, uh, that, that is more specific than just with uh, your standard microscopy. Um, as I said, it's it's like wearing a very specific glove rather than wearing like a, a body suit. You, you're getting more precise information about what it's doing, but also when it changes, because usually when biomolecules come together, they change shape, change function. So you, you can uh, also potentially tune the interaction with the tracker molecule so that when the molecule that you're interested in binds the tracker molecule might switch off its light, for example, or it might flip from left, right to uh, light to right-handed light, something weird like that. It's a bit of an open-ended, absolute open-ended question what we can do with this. Um, you know, pe people in the 1960s called the laser a technology looking for a problem, right? And then look at what we do with the laser now. And it's kind of similar here. It's like we're a technology looking for problems. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily how people think about science, but, um, you know, someone's what's got to invent the spanner. What's the scale of producing the lenses? Are those expensive? I know a team out of Harvard, for example, used uh, found that they were able to make meta lenses, which allowed them to uh, get this sort of effect. Um, but uh, they did it using a CD burner, so they could actually just use the existing infrastructure and then have those little lenses from that oh, process. Yeah, yeah the, the meta lenses, so you're thinking of like a micro patterns, like a little um, micro pattern exactly. ridges that bend the light uh, equivalent to yeah. your, your conventional lenses that you'd have in a pair of glasses, say, but they're really thin uh, instead. Um, so, so yeah, the optical elements involved, if, if you happen to be able to see slide seven, there's things called, well, linear polarizers. You can get ones that work well enough and these quarter wave plates, yeah, you can get them to work well enough and cheap enough for 3D cinema, right? Um, but to get them for science, a quarter wave plate, a good one will cost you about 700 pounds um, plus tax. A linear polarizer, you can get a good enough one for about fifty pounds plus tax. So at the moment, you know that's quite expensive. Um, in normal people money, in science money, that's not all that bad. So I, I would say the cost of putting together one of these chiral spectrometers just off the shelf without any economies of scale is maybe the cost similar cost to, you know, a four door car, a new four door car. Um, whereas the old technology was like the cost of a house. Yeah. So, uh, and there's potential economies of scale. It depends on what compromises you want. So the, the, the cheap cinema glasses, they don't do very well with blue light, for example. Um, and so you might get ghost images appearing in those 3D glasses, um, even if your vision's otherwise uh, equal in each eye. Uh, so that's a cool question. Yeah, I mean, you could probably, uh, 
I don't know about meta materials for quarter wave plates and linear polarizers, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is, because it's just it's manipulating the, the electric field of the light as it goes past, as it propagates through the material. And it's not something I've worked on. It's something I see the popular science articles for, these meta materials, and that's it's really cool. <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a favorite brand or model of polarizer? Um, I, I'm a Thor Labs kind of guy. Um, maybe that's just because uh, so Thor Labs are a company that supply all this optics equipment, and they they they're quite clever. They sometimes give you sweets and like chocolate bars and stuff. Uh, <laughs> so they ju they just use basic psychology to like bribe people into buying stuff from them. But they're also very reliable, and they're based in the UK, so they're 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 good to good to work with. That's awesome. Yeah, my wife uh, would bring uh, like treats for all the students for her uh, exams, and uh, she found the students did a little bit better. So it's always fun, fun finding a treat kind of cheers you up. And stuff. <laughs> Which was um, end, I have a question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jamie. Shall we go Victoria then, Jamie? Oh yeah, I was just throwing a, I was just throwing a comment on it. Like in the end, we're all just basic animals. At the end of the day, we just love sweet things. Anyway, funny, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Victoria. Oh, Jamie, exactly. I wanted to hear repeat. What was the name of the company that provides sweets and chocolates? <laughs> it's we it's called Thor Labs, like named after the the well, uh, a dog that was named after the god Thor, right? <laughs> Um, I think it was the company's founder dog. Um, yeah, and they've got a little dog mascot, a little green dog. It's, it's a very weird mascot <laughs> image. Yeah, I think the, the application you were thinking about was um, in ALS. Sorry, Katharina, I can hear the end of your question there. Um, the um, ALS research, uh, because there you kind of want to try how uh, the um, molecules change and why um, basically the, the mononeurons are dying. Um, so I think... Sorry, Katharina, you keep um, cutting out and you're quite quiet. Yeah, I don't know if that's us, but you're really muffled, Katharina. Is it your new AirPods or AirBuds? Yeah. Maybe. Can yeah, that's, be that's, yeah, that's so much better. Okay. And those those oh. expensive air cancelling, I mean, sound cancelling, <laughs> yeah. um, they, they don't like... work on Clubhouse. Yeah, no, thank they you. Don't. They make you sound like you're in a small, tiny, tin submarine and you're sinking. And if you are, let <laughs> okay. us know. We'll come help. <laughs> yeah, that would be quite horrible. Uh, yeah, no, in ALS, it's... Um, I, th I immediately thought about tracking, you know, different molecules in ALS to uh, to kind of monitor how the modern neurons uh, degenerate. You could start like in cell cultures uh, from basically derived maybe from um, mouse models or so, or induce, um, you know, a modern neuron death and then start from there. I, I thought it was interesting because recently a paper came out that uh, you could basically with a skin test uh, test for if um, somebody has real Parkinson or maybe some other disease that just looks like Parkinson. And based on that, I thought that maybe you can look at skin cells, maybe also in ALS, um, 
that was the amount of thought I had. So I think all these neurodegenerative um, diseases would be really cool to monitor um, different molecules and see how they change with the onset of the disease. And maybe one day we can diagnose when it actually cell death is occurring and not just when we have the actual symptom because it's way too late. Yeah. That that's that's really interesting to hear about. I'm I'm really interested to hear that these were um uh there was biomarkers involved in that you could find in skin cells for diseases that are presumably more to do with the uh, um neuroscience side of things, right? Um, yeah, and then there was another paper that came out that you can see in the retina uh, onset of dementia. Um, so I guess you maybe have a way to monitor on cell types that are easy, more easily accessible and see what happens through the onset of the disease. That would be really cool. One could try first in like animal models that we have in the disorders and uh, I'm really interested way, how it used to be like when I was at the Marine biological laboratory was we used this giant egg punch from squid and to and then dumped on all these mutated uh, proteins uh, onto the um, squeezed out um, cytoplasm from the giant squid and then we could actually see quite easily how they were trafficked and the trafficking was like if they accumulated somewhere, um, how, how that would work just because um, the giant axons are giant and it's very easy to do. But with your technology, we could like move on uh, even in this very basic research from models like Squid and go towards a more closer uh, mammal model, I think. Oh, that's that's really super interesting. Um, I love finding out about bioscience problems. Um, I think uh, I was speaking to Victoria at the start, and um, yeah, my PhD was in measurement of blood oxygen levels, and a lot of that was in the retina, which you mentioned. And then, of course, going to animal models and um, what what I work on now that I've moved on from this particular project as a postdoc, I've started my own own research which is uh, based upon uh, nanosensors for trying to measure blood oxygen levels through skin, through like a, a few centimeters of skin or uh, muscle and so on, with the idea of trying to help uh, cut down on the need for animal testing by uh, reducing the amount of animals that the bioscientists have to use. Um, all these things, the, the technology development always takes a, a long, long time in science. And, um, you know, as humans, I think we think often think about the terms of, you know, what's happening this, you know, today, next week, next month, next year. Um, and it's hard to get the big picture advances uh, to really think about them. Um, I think they're really clear to see in biosciences, you know, the past, the progress that's been made in like 30 years in all sorts of fields of biosciences, bioinformatics, disease testing, screening, disease therapeutics for so many things, um, you know, particular types of cancer, for example, have been 
so, some some cancers have been remarkably improved in terms of uh, treatment, as far as I'm aware. Um, technologies that are now mundane in biosciences are, you know, actually truly wondrous things, and people just treat them in a very blasé manner. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear about your thoughts about all this, uh, and and where it might go. I th I think it's it seems to be always important biosciences to try and be specific about uh, tracking how proteins change and how they function. I mean, there, there's so much research that goes into that. Uh, is it AlphaFold that's based upon Google DeepMind? Is it DeepMind? Sorry. Um, DeepMind, yeah. The other one is OpenAI, yeah. but that one's uh, Elon. Yeah, so the, the, there's so much... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so much potential, yeah. So, so if you could imagine creating a a probe, a chemical probe that uh, binds to particular uh, fold states, for example, uh, that you could read out with this, and you could be very sure that you're getting the the right-handed probe and the left-handed probe. The the the, the alternative is also uh, to have two probes at once, so you can use the same color channel and you can read out two probes. Um, I mean, you can kind of multiplex that already by color. Uh, but it potentially increase the amount of uh, things that you can monitor by a factor of two. Um, so, you know, rather than just looking at red, green, blue, uh, you could look at red, green, blue, but they're all left and right handed as well. So you could track, rather than just tracking three things, you could track six things in a cell. Or, you know, there, there's other ways of going about this. Um, and some people might say, I remember my PhD supervisor saying a factor of two is not important, but Personally, I think a factor of two can be a huge help when your information is scarce and sparse. Doubling it up can be a huge boost. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a total tangent here. <laughs> um, is there anything else we should chat about? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think monitoring, for example, continuous monitoring, even if you don't know what you're seeing, you'll see that there was a change and that could be a great early indicator for uh, reducing not only healthcare costs, wastes, because people are like, I think something's wrong with me. Oh, yeah, I definitely feel sick, you know, and nothing's wrong. You're just a little bit anxious today. And so having something that gives us some sort of measurement or reading. And in fact, I think one of the best use cases right now is probably something like cattle uh, monitoring, where you could probably build a, a gadget like this into a collar. And the animals could be monitored and you could tell, for example, if uh, if a female is pregnant or has had some other change in her body that's actually going to be uh, detectable and perhaps an anomaly compared to all the other animals. So, well, lots of industrial and applications in agriculture uh, as well. So, yeah, I haven't really thought about wearable tech for uh, cows, but of course, that's the thing. <laughs> Yeah, and I heard about it here on uh, Clubhouse, actually. There was a cattle farmer talking about this problem, and uh, they had an AI system, but they just didn't think it was that reliable. And, you know, they, they were saying it was like, you know, thousands of dollars of investment to this animal. So, uh, you know, anything that uh, helps you monitor that investment uh, was kind of worthy for them to add. And their argument seems to be something like uh, it's a quality argument. It's like it's so good that, you know, if it were bad, you wouldn't ever come back. So we would lose you for 
the rest of time because one negative experience is sometimes all it takes. And so, uh, at least in terms of commercial applications, just saying that you have this kind of new Star Trekky kind of uh, technology might even give you a, a market advantage. So there's lots of weird kind of considerations, at least in in some of our discussions with um, some uh, some industrial partners. Cool. So uh, I'm just curious about what sort of a uh... Uh, biomarkers they might be reading out, I guess, non-invasively, things like blood oxygen level, pulse rate, body temperature, um, uh, You can also, in, in some instances, there mm. are detectable differences in the presence of a pathogen, even when it's in its stationary versus exponential form, like a bacteria. So that's been kind of surprising. The fluorescence seem to make the signal more noisy. So somehow... Yeah, as you increase the fluorescent, it changes the like RF response of the molecules, and that was kind of unexpected, at least from our perspective. We're not really sure as to why that would be the case. It's obviously some sort of filter, but why did it change so significantly is is indeed a, a weird question. Oh yeah, uh, that that's yeah. So uh, yeah, there's quite a lot, lot of quite non-traditional um. You know, uh, non-traditional biosensors and uh, biomarkers you're looking at there. By the sounds of it, um, to totally different from the stuff that you might get in a smartwatch currently. Who knows what they might have in smartwatches in future? So that's really cool to hear about. I was talking to one of my colleagues this week who's trying to get into um, their own independent career in science, and uh, one of their markets is pets. Right, so that there's veterinary science and um, there's agricultural science, and uh, um, cows are big investment. But things like sheep, you know, some farmers are a bit blasé about these things. You know, uh, they're always trying to keep costs down. But uh, my colleague was saying there's a big market for um, pet health, making sure you know, people really care about their pets and anything that you can do. Oh yeah. Yeah, they'll Either they'll give their pets medication more on time than they will take it themselves. So that's kind of a, an odd example. That's wild. Do you have any direction that you're hoping to go, like from from here uh, with your research and where you're like looking to go in the next uh, like five to ten years? Well, with this particular strand of the research, it's um. So I kind of left the team to do something else um, to start my own strand of research. But in terms of this chiral light, it's very much an open question. I think the security inks are on one side really, really promising, but at the same time, we're getting less reliant on traditional documents. So we still need passports, but we've got less and less reliance on cash. Um, but you might see authentic devices. You know, um, if you think of uh, information security, knowing that the hardware is authentic is quite important. Um, and I also mentioned earlier, you know, things like military equipment, that's potentially like a big funder that could, you know, feed into, that could feed into the more of the bioscience side, right? The bioscience side is going to be a lot slower progress, but it's going to be potentially tailored, hyper tailored uh, to particular problems. And I'm uh, going well, to say I'm hyper tailored, I'm sure they're listening now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So in, ter in terms of the, the tailoring, you know, if, if it, it's probably an entire PhD to design one molecule. Um, 
So in the UK, that would be three or four years worth of research. You know, in North America, that could be much longer. Your PhDs are much longer in North America. Um, I, I know that this is like taking it slightly, like uh, slightly off direction here, but when you're mentioning about funding and stuff, uh, would you find there would be any kind of like moral issues? Because all this stuff sounds incredible and exciting, but the idea that military people fund something like that scares me quite a lot. Oh, well, yeah, well, uh, well, absolutely. Um, I, I totally understand that. I mean, there might be arguments for saying, right, okay, you don't want to take uh, military money. I would say, like, if they're going to be making some of this stuff anyway, making sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands and the security is, you know, keeping it in the right places, at least, um, or keeping it accountable to some extent. Um, personally, I'm a bit more comfortable with that, right? Um, um, you know, and that, that could go down to things like uh, ammunition, for example, which is something uh, Rob, who's the, the leader on this work, he likes to go um, uh to like target practice and stuff, uh, which is quite unusual in the UK. Shooting is not as big a hobby here as it is, obviously, in other countries. Um, but to keep, you know, to be able to trace, for example, bullets, uh, illegal ammunition is a big problem, uh, I believe. Um, you know, th there's th there's different ways to spin that. Um, and to be honest, I'm not really have to. I don't really have to think about that because I'm not really involved in it anymore. Um, but I, I think I think the science side's the more the bioscience side's the more like interesting side from the science point of view. But uh, for technology to mature and be useful, I think it's, it's useful to have a few different, um, you know, inputs. And you know, if you can make money flow from one side of it to another, to you know, from the more commercially applicable applicable side through to the more um blue sky science side then that would probably be a good approach um it's not for me to decide these days um but that, that was a really good question and i think it, it's something that you know is, is very important to consider as scientists and research is you know how your technology gets used and uh you know even the simplest hammer can be you know is the hammer or moral technology? Well, you can use it to build a house, but you can use it to really hurt someone, right? Um, it's it's a tricky thing. Um, that's why I would say I was taking it a little bit off track. Like I said, that's I know that like we went from the sides, but just would have mentioned the, the the military, and it is um typically a fact of life that that normally military departments are more well funded to assist you if they think that something down the line can. Can have results like what you're saying, even even with regards to bullets or, or just like you know tracking people or something like that, you know. Oh well, yeah. I mean, yeah, tra tracking people is definitely a lot more in invasive uh, security measures, you know, there than um. But already you get a uh, fluorescent luminescent tags. There's a a thing in the market called smart water, which is imagine. You're a thief trying to steal something from a safe. If you break into the safe, um, and some sort of security measure is tripped, then it could spray this uh, dye on you, and it's a, it's a dye that appears under ultraviolet that really glows brightly under ultraviolet light, um, and it's nowhere near as complex as this that we've been talking about today. 
um, but it would be, you know, stained into someone's skin, right? Um, so similarly, like uh, there's other dyes that aren't that that don't glow. Um, I think I think the thing with the smart water is they can say, well, we know this particular batch of smart water came from somewhere in particular, and so they can link people to scene of a crime. Um, I don't quite know how they do that. It might be to to do with the the ratios that they mix slightly different colours of the 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 glowing component, the fluorescent component of that uh, security dye. So but if you're robbing a bank, mean... don't stop to drink the water there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so <laughs> th these are really important questions. Absolutely, as scientists, it's it's really something to consider. I I don't know how scientists of the twentieth century, you know, some, uh, you know, it's, you you look at uh, some of the most celebrated physicists of the twentieth century, and all the just pure physics that they're involved in, but they might have also been involved in the Manhattan Project, right? Like, they talk about a, a burden to live with for the rest of your life. Um, and, you know, if that's a whole other issue and a whole that other was, debate, but just to that, live that, with that sort of thing. Yeah, that, well, like I said, that, uh, that was my fault for just taking it to that direction because I kind of, like, pushed it any more of a, a philosophical, ethical ethical thing there but just as it was coming up i couldn't help that <laughs> <laughs> is, is there any questions so in the room uh thank you so much jim for the questions and uh we um it's um going for an hour and a half and we talked about around an hour so i thank you so much um louis for taking more of your time than expected uh but your research is so interesting and i can't wait so um Sorry that we took way longer. And um, yeah, thank you again for this uh, great presentation. And uh, yeah, um, although you moved on to, you know, uh, share with us this really interesting research and uh, always come back to Science Society. We have uh, more guest speakers maybe you want to you know, listen or you want to share what you're doing next like when you have updates about your current project. So um, that would be also wonderful. So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, thank you everyone for asking wonderful questions and making this discussion interesting. So um, yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you, Katharina. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Um, I think this is a really cool platform. I think it's a really nice little community. And thanks for everyone for um, tuning in and for all the great participation as well i really appreciate it yeah sorry about that i i happen to just do that kind of work so i was like oh my god i've met another person who also <laughs> was, <laughs> no, I, I i love the crossover like um yeah it, it's really nice when when you see something you're like oh yeah you, i feel like you know this is relevant there's a lot of science where you kind of feel like oh this is way beyond me um or at least I feel like that a lot of the time when I see, you know, talks in chemistry and or bioinformatics and stuff. And I'm like, this is quite, quite beyond me. I need the popular science version of this. But when there's some things that you know and you can go, oh, I can latch on to that. That's cool. And you never know where ideas might come from. I mean, my best ideas that have kept me in jobs have uh, come from seemingly random connections. So it's always worth learning. 
Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. And uh, I also really appreciate that you have, you know, this very broad spectrum of science um, that you use. I actually don't like to cut up science in these uh, categories we do. Like, I think we have to move on from that to really continuously doing real innovation. Like, this is just physics and this is just like we have to move away from that. So. If you're a physicist, uh, though, you would say that all your best ideas uh, occur in the shower. Historically, uh, <laughs> that's highly probable. I, I can tell you where my best idea occurred. It was when I was in the pub <laughs> listening to someone talk about science, but they hadn't prepared their talk very well, so I zoned out. And uh, that's when it all came together for me. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I had to tell you a couple so yeah, if you like talks like this, uh, follow our science society, everyone, and we'll have tomorrow Dr. Fletcher. Um, he's talking about the new method for training creativity. He's like um, published a bunch of books and goes through a lot of data and comes up with um, really interesting theories. So he's a really interesting um, researcher. And then Dr. Lewis, uh, also from the UK, he will talk about, uh, he's a theoretical physicist, and he will talk about this latest um, paper, um, Why Evolution Favors Symmetry. Uh, and then Saturday we'll have um, Dr. Fuscalis, um from Max Planck Institute. Uh, talking about this um, technology, organic neuromorphic electronics. So it's a really cool new field. And um, yeah, thank you again. Um, and uh, to our special guest, Louis, thank you so much. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day, morning, evening, wherever you are. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Louis, for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a privilege. <laughs> okay. Bye. I'll Bye. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.